Well, good morning, Harvest, and uh, what a great start and just time to worship the Lord and lift his name high. Uh, We're going to dive into God's word here in just a minute. Uh, One thing I just wanted to toss out an invite to you, it's totally random, but uh, Karen and I, we're going to be, after things get closed down here, we're going to head down and grab lunch at Culver's down in Plainfield, and then at 2.15, the Resurrection of Gavin Stone movie's playing, we're going to watch that, so if you've got the game recorded... Um, and uh, you want to join? Come on. Uh, we're, we'll go down to Culver's Eat and then see the movie uh, then. But uh, you're welcome. Welcome to do that. All right? <laughs> you have no idea how to respond to that, do you? <laughs> well, last Sunday, uh, last Sunday we began a new sermon series called the Ready Together Go. And uh, talked about how the last nine years, so much the last nine years has been about us growing in that and being that as a church family and uh, being ready and together and going as a team. And we're really desiring to advance in that. And uh, any team that increases in size, uh, it's always a challenge for that team to continue to be or to increase in its togetherness as it gets larger and larger. And yet we believe that that is something we are willing to take that call, right? And so we are going to be uh, advancing together. And so part of what's going on right now is um, um, I'm taking us through this series, keyed in on this camping on together thing, what it looks like. And how I'm starting this out is taking three Sundays here to build a foundation, a theological foundation, upon then which we can have some conversations uh, coming out of Corinthians about. And uh, being a church that wants to be a together church, here's one of the, the sad realities. Every local church desires to be an advancing together local church. The sad reality is few are. I think every church wants to be a together church, but few are, and I think there's all kinds of reasons for that, but it's a sad truth. So this sermon series is kind of trying to grab us together and say, listen, we want to be a together church, and we want to advance together in that. And so we're building this theology of it. Last Sunday was part one of three, so that means this Sunday is part two of three, spot on with me. All right, we're, we're hanging in there together. So last Sunday, I started with part one. It was God has ordained relationship. Friends, we're gonna keep coming back to this truth because it's so important because I think, honestly, we have a tendency to think that like humans invented relationship. And we're talking about relationship with God and we're talking about relationship with other people. And we tend to think that's just a human thing, but it's not. We went last week and we took a look at it, how in the beginning, God created relationship in the beginning, and he created it for into eternity. We went to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We took a look at Revelation 21 and 22 and see that. But not only is that the case, but God talks about how he has established relationship continued through that. God has continued relationship out of his grace. And we saw that especially you can see that through God's working of covenants, through the scripture, relationship covenants, and also through command. Matthew 22, Jesus says, uh, love the Lord and love others. That's it. That's what it's about. Uh, That's the bottom line of it. Now, I was going to take kind of five minutes here and bring around more summary of this together, but then Pastor Cody had uh, showed me a cartoon that's five minutes long. sums up so much of this. So I was like, okay, I could take five minutes and communicate it, or we could watch a cartoon for five minutes and and it be communicated. And I vote for the cartoon. 
So here we go. God has ordained relationship. Watch the cartoon. If you've been around Christians, you've probably heard of the idea of having a personal relationship with God, which could mean different things in the Bible, like having God as a friend or your father or maybe your teacher. But there's one particular way that the Bible talks about this relationship that you find all over. But strangely, we don't talk about it that much. And that's the idea of a partnership with God. A partnership like working alongside someone to accomplish a goal together. Right. And this is actually what you see at the beginning of the Bible. God creates this good world full of all of this potential. And then God appoints these unique creatures, humans, as his partners in bringing more and more goodness out of all that potential. But the humans don't want to partner with God. They rebel and try to create a world on their own terms. And so this broken partnership is the Bible's explanation for why we're stuck in a world of corruption and injustice and the tragedy of death. It's not like there's just one or two humans who have bailed on this relationship. In the story of the Bible, everyone has abandoned the partnership with God. So what God does is select a smaller group of people out of the many. And he makes a new partnership with them called a covenant. And in a covenant, God makes promises and then in exchange asks his partner to fulfill certain commitments. And the purpose of all of this is to somehow use this covenant relationship to renew his partnership with everybody else. Now, there are actually four times in the Old Testament that we're told God initiates a covenant relationship with Noah, Abraham, the nation of Israel, and King David. And it's through these that God is forming a covenant family into which all people will eventually be invited. So let's see how these work. The first one is with Noah. So in this story, God has just brought the flood to cleanse the world of humanity's corruption. And Noah and his family are the only ones left. And so God makes a covenant with Noah saying, listen, I know that humans will continue to be evil. But despite that, I'm not going to destroy it like this again. Instead, the earth will be this reliable place for us to work together. Great. So what does Noah have to do? Nothing. And that's what's so interesting about this first covenant is that God is promising to be faithful even though he knows humans won't be. The next time we see God make a covenant is with a man named Abraham. God chooses him promises to bless him, give him a large family, lots of land where they can flourish. And in return, God asks Abraham to trust him and train up his family to do what is right and just. And the whole reason for this covenant is God says that somehow he's going to bring his blessing to all families of the world through this one family. So that's Abraham. The next time we see God make a covenant is when Abraham's family grows into the tribe of Israel. And this covenant is with the whole tribe. God asks them to obey a set of laws, which are these guidelines for living well as a community of God's partners. And if they do this, then God promises to bless them and that they will become a people who then represent him to the rest of humanity. That's the covenant with Israel. The last covenant is with King David. Yeah, the tribe of Israel has become this large nation ruled by David. And God asked David and his descendants to partner with him by leading Israel in obeying the laws and doing what is right and just. And God promises that one day, one of David's sons will come and extend God's kingdom of peace and blessing over all the nations. So those are the four covenants that God makes in order to restore his partnership with the whole world. But here's what happens. Israel breaks the covenant. They worship other gods. They allow horrible injustice. And so they lose their land and are forced off into exile. So it seems hopeless. But during this time, Israel's prophets talked about a day when God would restore these covenants in spite of Israel's failure somehow. 
Yeah, they called it the new covenant. And this is actually what's so interesting about Jesus is that he's introduced into this story as the one who fulfills all of these covenant relationships. We're told that he's from the family of Abraham, and so he will bring the blessings of that family to the whole world. We're told that he's the faithful Israelite who was able to truly obey the law. And we're told that he's the king from the line of David. And so he goes about extending God's kingdom of justice and peace to all. And that's really remarkable for one guy. Yeah, and what it highlights is perhaps the most surprising claim of all made about this man, that Jesus is no mere human, but rather God become human. And God did this in order to be that faithful covenant partner that we are all made to be, but have failed to be. And so through Jesus, God has opened up a way for anyone to be in a renewed partnership with him. So Jesus calls people to follow him and become part of this new covenant family. And despite their failures, Jesus is committed to making them into partners who were becoming more and more faithful. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a fully renewed world, full of goodness and peace. And there's this renewed humanity there, partnering together with God to expand the goodness of his creation. And so the end of the Bible story is really a new beginning. Well, I love cartoons all the time, and uh, I think that's really helpful to summarize up so much of last Sunday, and God has ordained relationship. This whole book is about relationship, is the core reality of it. And so uh, with that, uh, that's truth number one, God has ordained relationship. Uh, I also am thinking, hey, there are some potential responses from that. Let me just note a couple before we dig into uh, truth number two. Here's one. Uh, But Doug, I'm not a people person. I'm not a people person. Well, theological truth number one, God has ordained relationship, is not calling for us to be extroverts or introverts. That's not the issue. The issue is God has called us into loving, into serving, into ministering to other people and to one another and with the Lord. We were created for relationships, so it's not about a personality thing. Uh, Secondly, it's a response is, well, I just don't need people. It's kind of the old, I've got gray hair, so I'll go back to it. It's a Simon and Garfunkel, I am an island, I am a rock. Uh, No, you're not. Um, And how's that working for you, if that's the case? The truth of the matter is God has called us to be in relationship with people. Uh, We are not to be alone. Here's a third one really fits with today. Uh, But Doug, uh, people bring hurt, people bring pain, people bring disappointment. Absolutely they do. And this is one of the leveling things for today in our whole conversation of today. Everyone in this room, everyone in this room knows hurt from relationships with people. Everyone understands disappointments and we could stack them all up. We could talk about what they are individually, but every one of us know this. And so part of it is, is, well, but, but, but I don't want to do that because people bring hurt. We'll talk more about that. And here's a fourth one. Uh, Pastor Doug, I don't do the relationship thing. I don't do the together thing because people, including God's people most certainly, are hypocrites. I, I have actually one, a one-word response to that, and it's this. Duh. <laughs> I mean, does anybody in this room think that you have your act all together? I mean, is anyone in this room who declares Jesus Christ as their savior like perfect and got it all figured out and, 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 and never doing what you don't want to do. No. Well, well, am I a hypocrite at times? Absolutely I am. 
And you need to know that. So the hypocrite excuse is, is, is really one of, one of the dumbest excuses possible. I understand it. But at the same time, here's the reality. If you're a hypocrite, welcome. Amen. Welcome. Because none of us are perfect. We're all trying to grow and change. We want to seek after the Lord, but we fail a lot in doing all of that. And that's the question I want to put on the table here for us today. If God has ordained relationship, theological truth number one, then theological truth number two is, why is there so much brokenness in relationship? I mean, if God has ordained relationship, why is there so much brokenness in relationship? And the answer to that is because of sin. Sin has brought brokenness in relationship with the Lord. Sin has brought brokenness brokenness in relationship with one another. Let me build this out, okay? Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter three, Genesis three. Remember, today we're doing uh, like last Sunday and we will here in two Sundays, we're laying a theology foundation so it's a little bit different than a particular text that working out of a single text. We're building a theology from scripture. So we're doing an undergirding here. Um, we're going to be in Genesis, be reading here from Genesis in just a second. If you're new to the Bible, Genesis chapter one talks about the seven day creation account. Genesis two narrows in uh, on that creation account and talks about how the uh, creation of Adam and Eve and how that came about within Genesis one. Genesis three then is the fall of humanity. Sin comes into the picture of it. I could say it this way, theologically, Adam and Eve bite it. Yeah. Laugh a little with me, friends. Okay, it's theology. Don't get too down. All right? That's truly what happened. Adam and Eve bite it. We'll see here what's going on. And I want to begin with this statement. We are broken people living in a broken world. We are broken people living in a broken world. Um, Before we get to Genesis 3, look at verse 31, chapter 1, the last verse of chapter 1. God creates everything and God says... That everything was not just good, but very good. The Godhead looks at what's been created, including Adam and Eve and, and everything going on. And he's like, this is good. This is really, really good. And then look at Genesis 2, uh, verses 15 through 17 here. I'm going to read this because of the theology that carries into chapter 3. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. We're going to read of that here in just a second. Um, Why did God put one restriction in the garden of Eden and the relationship with him? It's a great question. Why did God do that? Did God, didn't God just set them up for failure? Well, one of the key reasons for this is because relationship with God was to be a mutual reciprocal love. And in fact, rather than me talk about it, I just want to read three paragraphs from a guy named Henry Morris. I think he communicates this well. You can see it up on the screen. I'll begin with the first paragraph. He says, thus... There could be no doubt that God's nature of love was central to his purpose in creating men and women. In some mysterious depths of God's own nature, there seems to have been a desire for other spiritual personalities other than the Godhead itself on whom he could bestow his love. But love is a reciprocal relationship. One cannot love an inanimate object, though such a term is often carelessly used. 
Furthermore, love which is unrequited is one of the great tragedies of human life. For love to be expressed in all its fullness, there must be mutual love, each for the other. And a perfect creator could hardly be satisfied with an imperfect love relationship. Therefore, therefore, if God created people with the purpose of bestowing his love on them, his purpose must also have included a mutual and reciprocated love on their parts. But love by its very nature must be voluntary. An automaton cannot love its maker. If they are really to love God, men and women must be able to choose out of their own will to love God in response to God's love for them. An involuntary love is a contradiction in terms and there can be no such thing. And so God in his wisdom puts this tree in the Garden of Eden and says, don't go there. And the question on the table is this. Are Adam and okay to live under that restriction? Or is that not enough for them? Let's take a look. Genesis 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he, the serpent, said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, uh, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Spot on, girl. Spot on. Way to speak it back to Satan. Verse four. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. By the way, hang on to that word desire. To be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. The bottom line here is that Adam and Eve were not content with what God had put in place. They wanted something more. They thought God might be jipping them out of something. And so in it, in stepping out from the one singular restriction God put, they bit it and disobeyed God. Look at verse seven, what happens after this. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. Like who cares? I mean like, no one's around anyway. Come on, work with me. Right? Don't get too uncomfortable here. All right? With it. I mean, I was like, come on, you guys. And both their eyes were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. <laughs> it's just so interesting what we do. Hey, Adam and Eve, right after sin, make an attempt to cover themselves. By the way, I note by their own means. That is so religion. By our own means, we try and cover what has gone wrong. Hey friends, as broken people living in a broken world, we cover. And we try to cover by our own means. We try to cover up our brokenness before the Lord <laughs> like God doesn't know. We try to hide our brokenness in relationship with others. 
hey, I just want for you to know, as a senior pastor, I got this whole thing figured out, and I just want for you to know, I have no brokenness. I got my act fully together. By the way, I just want for you to know, I don't sin. And yet is it not true that at times we, a a senior pastor or someone, can act like that's the case? Like we got our act together. Hey, I want for you to know here today, I am a broken senior pastor. Got it? Okay, and you are broken as well. Like let's cut the games. Let's, let's cut trying to look like we are someone that we are not. There is something wonderfully freeing in just being able to say, we're busted people. All the time we spend trying to cover up by our own means. I literally was going to title this sermon, We Are Jerks. But I didn't. <laughs> but I said it. So here we go, verse eight. <laughs> We're just dorks. It's just, well, look at them. Like they're covering us. What is the deal? Verse eight. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, what'd they do? They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So Adam and Eve here, what do they do next? They hide. They hide from the presence of God. And we as broken people do the same. We hide. We try and hide so that no one knows of our sin. We try and hide from the Lord so that the Lord doesn't think or find us broken. And it's just ridiculous. Consider this. Covering and hiding. Just those two items alone, what happens? Here's what happens. It brings separation. You see, when you cover, yeah, but it's just some clothes. No, but already we have a dividing barrier taking place, right? And then we hide. That's even more separation. I want to stay away from the presence of the Lord. We have covering, we have hiding, and that is separation from the Lord. But it doesn't just be separation from the Lord, because look at verses 11 through 13. And God said to Adam, who told you that you were naked? God knows the whole thing. He's drawing out the heart here. And he asked, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, sorry. And the man said, the woman you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. We are masterful at blame shifting. We cover, we hide, we blame shift. Verse 12, Adam. uh, Listen, guys, this is so not a high moment in all of maledom. Here is Adam, and it's like before the Lord. Hey, Adam, what's the deal, dude? And he throws God and his wife, and he has no other options. He throws God and his wife under the proverbial bus. Hey, Lord, the woman that you made, she made me eat it. Like she, she shoved it down my throat. 
<laughs> you, you are such a dork. It's blame shifting. And then he goes to Eve, Eve, what's the deal? It's not my fault. And I love the fact Eve was spot on for a moment. Eve was declaring back to Satan God's truth. And yet, she likewise bit of it. We cover, we hide, we blame shift. And then God speaks to each of them. He speaks to the serpent. He speaks to Adam. I just want to pull out one thing in here because this is really telling. Verse 16, to the woman, God said, um, judgment, consequences of sin. He says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall now bring forth children. And it's this last line here. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Oh, friends, I'm just going to tell you, because we're talking theology here, I'm, I'm pausing on this for a moment because it really has big ramifications, and, and there's a lot of bad theology that's gone with this. A lot of this is taking it from an authoritarian subjugation kind of a thing, and, and if the, God's Word said that, then, then I would say it. And I'm not trying to get out from it, but I want for you to understand in this statement what's really going on here. Uh, what God is saying is you are going to want to desire to rule over your husband, and he's going to want to desire to rule, to rule over you. Here's what's going on. When sin came into the picture, war started happening between relationships. Uh, Doug, can you prove that? Absolutely, would love to. Because you gotta look at chapter four, verse seven, at the end of verse seven. Because at the end of verse seven, it uses the exact same Hebrew terminology in this. And it talks there, sin is crouching at your door, Adam. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. But I could spend some time talking about it, but I think it would just be quicker for me. I want to read a paragraph here from uh, Claire Smith who, who sums this up. And it's important on the language here to understand what's going on. And she says this, the links between the two, that's Genesis 3.16 and Genesis 4.7 at the end of that verse, are clear with the repetition of the sentence structure and the words translated desire and rule. That one text is about a human relationship and the other involves a personification of sin in chapter 4 should not concern us. Their proximity and their similarity, written as they are by the same author in the same discourse, are enough indication of their ability as interpretive clues for each other. In other words, we're trying to understand what the text is saying. And it suggests that the meaning of both desire and rule are similar in both texts. The word desire has the sense of possess, of control. To dominate. It, it fits the theme of the conflict running through God's judgment here. Understand, there's been this conflict that's been going on, and, and as the different parts of creation wrestle for control, and I love this summation, she says, the serpent seeks dominance over humanity, the man seeks to master the ground, and the woman seeks to control her husband. What's being said here? Here's what's being said. Sin has brought the desire to self-rule. Sin has brought the desire to self-rule. In other words, this is what I had said. She is now going to want to rule him, and he is going to have the desire to rule over her. And what ends up happening there is we end up becoming our own little kings and our own little queens of our own little kingdom of which you are in subjects to my kingdom. Hey, if you're married, you know what I'm talking about here. 
You know what it is to want to rule over your spouse. True? And some are like, I'm not saying it. (laughs) No, it's true. It's no one tells me what to do. It should be done this way. My way is the right way. It's, It's I do what I want. I want what I want from you, and I will get what I want from you. And if you don't give me what I want for you, from you, you will pay a price. And we become our own little kings, our own little queens, of our own dorky little kingdoms, of which you are the subjects in my kingdom. Genesis 3.16, God is saying, Adam and Eve, sin has entered into the picture of the reality of this unique relationship that I established, that I ordained for you two. And as a result of your sin, your relationship will now include a war between the two of you to rule each other. By the way, I want to be very clear on this right now. I'm not talking about the person to your right or to your left. I'm talking to you. And I'm talking to me. To be the thing right now where it's like, man, preach it, Doug, because he needs to hear this. She needs to hear this. You know, man, preach it, Doug, because my parents need to hear this. Or preach it, Doug, because I hope my kids hear this. Hey, do you realize that doing that right now is covering, hiding, and especially blame shifting? And it is self-ruling. All of that goes right back to the very beginning of sin. And I'm trying to protect yourself from yourself. Okay? By the way, look at Genesis 3, verse 21 and 23. Verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. How cool is that? That is such a picture of the gospel to come. Listen, we try and cover, we try and make ourselves right with God. That is so foolish. Only God can be the one who can provide the right kind of clothing, the right kind of covering that we can continue to be in relationship with him. And then verse 23, and the Lord God sent them out from the garden Sin separates. Separation has taken place. But may I know this. God has not destroyed them. There is still relationship. But the perfect world with the perfect creation, the very good of Genesis 1.31 is now broken people living in a broken world of which a God still loves them. Hey, I, I can tell you there's about a hundred other things I'd rather be talking about today. hundred positive things I'd rather be hitting on talking about today, but other than sin separates. But I just want for you to know, this is real. And actually out of this, this should, I'm hoping as we walk away encouraged and hopeful. Because of this whole thing, there is such a game that's going on where we try and hide and we try and cover. It's like, let's cut it. Let's just stop it. And let's be the kind of together people that realizes, hey, we're a broken people. 
Hey, by the way, let me say that one more time and you'd really be an encouragement to me in some kind of way. Hey, we're broken people. We are, right? All agreed? Okay, agreed, we're a broken people, so let's kind of, let's cut the games, let's try to cu- quit trying to hide, quit trying to cover, quit trying to blame shift. We're just broken people trying to learn to be able to love the Lord more. And when that gets on the table, it's like, the load's lightened. Because now I don't have to try and game you, or you me, or one another. Sin has brought brokenness into relationship. We're broken people living in a broken world broken people cover in shame we try and cover our brokenness before the lord in shame we attempt to cover our brokenness from one another brokenness broken people hide in fear we try and hide our brokenness before the lord and in fear we try and hide our brokenness from one another broken people blame shift the lord put me in this position the lord's the one who messed it up she did it <laughs> The Lord's the one who put the one restriction there. I mean, the Lord's ultimately uh, the, the problem in it. The Lord made me this way, or, or, or it's my parents' fault, it's my spouse's fault, it's my church's fault, it's Satan's fault. I don't know, I just know this is not my fault. Broken people seek to possess and control and self-rule. It's so interesting, as broken people, we try and act as though we're unbroken. And as broken people living in a broken world, we think that you should be unbroken. Why are we so surprised when the world sins? Why are we so surprised that people who are without the Lord sin? Why are we surprised that when God's people sin? Because sometimes we can be jerks. Well, Pastor Doug, you are so describing my spouse. (laughs) Don't do that. Come on, Pastor Doug, it's really not that bad. Actually, that's true. It's worse. And I need to drill down into this just a little bit more. Not to make us feel like scum of the earth, but to get the theology on the table because there's a total giant pile of hope in it all. Okay, Look at Genesis 6, just over a page. So here I'm filling out, what does it look like, a little bit more, to be broken? Let me just fill this out for a few passages here. Genesis 6, right before the flood, uh, verse 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Not just like there was a lot of it, but it was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. (laughs) It's like such a stack of words. I mean, it's like he could have just said, you know, it's really bad. But no, no, no. It's like, so that we understand, it's like the thoughts of his heart are only evil continually. And and not only the thoughts, every intention is evil. Friends, that's the core of who we are because of sin. And by the way, verse 6, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Listen, God's not like, oh, I never saw this. I didn't see this coming. No, no, God knew this was coming all along and he's trying to put in human terminology that we understand the sadness of it all. The Lord's like, look at this, like it so breaks his heart that it wasn't intended to be this way, but he knew it was going to be this way. And yet in it, it's, we're that broken. By the way, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 in the New Testament. 
I'm just filling in. We, we need to see the brokenness while you're turning there. Romans 3, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside. No one does good, no, not even one. Surely there's got to be one that's done good. Nope, not one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 6, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Just quickly look at Ephesians 2, the first three verses. I preached the verses 1 through 10 at Easter. You can go back and listen to that sermon more. I build it out more. But here, just quickly read it. Uh, Paul says, and you were dead. He's writing to living people, by the way. So he's clearly talking about their spiritual condition. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. It's interesting. He uses two Greek words to describe sin. He just doesn't say, and you were dead in sin. He actually uses two different words with slightly different angles about the capacities and the components of sin that he lays it out here. And he says, listen, here's the fact. You were dead in your sins upon sins, piled high, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at the work and sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What's the point here? The point is this. I think sometimes we have the tendency to blame shift and we think that God kind of put us in a place where we're on the perimeter of sin and the text is not talking about that. We're not stuck like we got a raw deal. The fact of the matter is we are in the sin, lavishing in it, loving in it, playing in it, residing in it, owning it, and having a blast in it. Not me. Oh, pfft. That's the nature of who we are because of sin. Romans 5, verse 12. Don't turn there, just listen. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned. Isaiah 59, 2. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Earlier we sang a song about how holy the Lord is. He's set apart, set apart, set apart. Even though he loves us, the fact of his holiness and the the total depravity of our sin, he has no other choice than either to provide a covering or to reject because of our great sin. Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Pastor Doug, I think that you're being a major Dougie Downer today with all this broken depravity thing. Can you just take a moment and show me where this could happen within me and maybe someone else? Yeah, I'd love to do that. Turn to the right to James 4. James 4. Watch the self-ruling desire. Every one of us are going to get this. Do you ever wonder why why we fight? You ever wonder why we quarrel? Well, here you go. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is at enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Husbands, wives, 
parents, children, children, parents, friends, friends. Why do you fight and quarrel? Because it's not happening the way I expect it to happen. Because I'm not getting what I want right now. Because you're not doing the way I think it should be happening. Because it should be responding this way to the whole thing of it all. Do you see how we self-rule our own little kingdoms? You see? Yeah, but Pastor Doug, he, she's 70% of the problem. I'll admit I'm 30% of the problem. Here's the deal then. Take 100% responsibility for your percent of the problem. You see, when we go, but their sin. No, that's blame shifting. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did. The fact of the matter is, take 100% responsibility for your part of the problem. Turn to Romans 7. We're almost done. I think this is going to encourage you. Romans 7. Hey, can you show me where someone else is going through this? Can do, Romans 7. How about this? Like the Apostle Paul. I mean, the Apostle Paul, like he wrote a lot of scripture, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's got his act together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Watch. Romans 7, verse 14. Paul's saying, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Here we go, verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. Have you ever been that? Where it's like, whoa, did you just see that? What just happened? I do not even understand why I just did that. I mean, goodness sakes, why did I think that? Why did I say that? I mean, I just did, I just said, I just thought the very thing that I don't want to say, think, or do. And I just did, like, like, what's the scoop with that? For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. Paul was a hypocrite. With me? Verse 16, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He's not blame shifting, he's just stating the fact. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I now do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be, at the, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but, 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 but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Do you see the battle? He is a redeemed man in Christ, and yet there is this battle that is continually going on with him. Can you relate to the battle? It gives me so much hope. 
to know that Paul and you struggle as well. Friends, this is hard stuff. I'd rather just bypass it and talk about fluffy bunnies or something. But why is there so much broken relationship with the Lord and others? It's because the sin condition of our hearts has brought separation with the Lord and with others. And even when coming to realize that because of my sin I've been separated from God from eternal relationship and we understand that the Bible says that all who receive him to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even being redeemed back at that time when I drive the stake in the ground and I receive Christ as my savior. Even when I'm back in relationship with it there is still a, a, a not yet reality of the fullness of what will be eternal. There will be a day when we will see the Lord face to face and there will be no sin and the war will be over but yet though redeemed we still have the war, Romans 7. And so in it, if a faith family like ours is going to indeed be a together, advancing together faith family, then we need to be honest about putting on the table this fact that we are broken. I am a broken man. I live the Romans 7 battle all the time. And if you think that I am, as a senior pastor, am somehow more spiritual up on the level of it all, you have bad theology. And if I think that of you, that you shouldn't be sinning, like, come on, they're my people. Like, don't annoy me with your sins. That is bad theology. When we come together, we should be coming together theologically understanding this is where broken people come. And this is not a haven for the saints. This is a hospital for sinners. And this is hopeful. We're all broken. By the way, sorry, all this is welling up in me. Been a long week. By the way, this changes how you go to small group. When you go to small group to be with people, you're not going there so that I can first and foremost find like hobby friends and the most equal kinds of friends. You, you, you go to small group because you want to be with some broken people to be able to get on a level. To be, will you help me as a broken person, as broken people? Can we, we like grow together? Like, let's, let, let's cut out the economic level if that's a struggle for you or the, the whatever level or the, you know, they don't have the same hobby as me. No, we're just broken people trying to cluster together to help broken people. Because we tend to cover, we tend to hide, we tend to blame shift, we tend to self-rule, and we need to help each other out of that. And may we not be surprised when each other sins. Hard stuff. 
But I hope we walk away from this today lightened. So what do we do from here? Last verse, turn to Matthew 7. So how do we leave from here? You know, we could talk about fluffy bunnies and get off the subject, but I think that would be the wrong thing to do because we're trying to deal with the theology. And so I'm just asking simply this, this work that you, this week, that you would do what I'm going to call lumberjack optometry. I'm going to ask that you would do some lumberjack optometry. Now, I, I would have to say that those words don't seem to fit, do they? I mean, it's like if you have something wrong with your eye, I don't really want a lumberjack going at it, right? I mean, that doesn't fit, but if Jesus kind of said this, um, I think he's saying we need to leave here uh, doing lumberjack optometry work on ourselves. What in the world am I talking about? Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Jesus is saying this. Judge not that you, no, that you be not judged. Here we go. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That means like if you're really hard on people, like you've got a really long ruler on people, and you really are hard on them, the Lord is saying, you know what? The hard rule that you use, I'm going to use it on you. And by the way, I'm not talking about the person next to you. I'm talking about you. Shorten the ruler. Because the measure you use to judge other people will be used on you. And then he says this, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? Why do you see the speck that is in your sister's eye? But do not notice the gigantic beam log that is in your own. Or how can you say to your brother, how can you say to your sister, let me take the speck out of your eye. When there is like a giant beam log in your own eye. Right? I mean, just got the picture? Here, let me help you with your problem that I see is so big that I'm going to nail on you, and I've got bong, bong, this gigantic timber in my eye. And then you wonder why people are like, you know, being around church people are some of the most annoying people on the place of the year. Sometimes they can just act like total jerks. This is why. In fact, Jesus takes it so serious, he says, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you'll be able to see clearly your brother's or sister's eye. Take your sin more seriously than someone else's. Yeah, but Doug, you don't know what they've done. Take your sin more seriously. Yeah, but Doug, you don't know what's going on right now. Listen, don't cover it, don't hide it, don't blame shift it, stop self-ruling it. Get in your eye like a lumberjack. And I'm asking that this week, that I, that we would just watch ourselves. Watch how you respond to relationships. Watch what you say to people. Why are we doing that? Why are we saying that? Uh, Look, right there, right there. That was a moment where I was a king, that was a queen of my own little kingdom, thinking that they should do it exactly the way that I think as I'm the ruler of their lives and they're my subjects. Stop it. Lord, I confess what I'm doing right now. Oh, where's the grace? Poured out lavishly in our homes, in our relationships, to our children, children to your parents, church one another. This week, lumberjack optometry. God, um, whew. Sometimes we need to hear things we don't want to hear. 
And I'm convinced we need to hear this one. And we need to hear it because it happened with Adam and Eve and it's continued through and every one of us live this. We seek to cover, we seek to hide, we seek to blame shift, we seek to self-rule. So I'm just gonna say it. God, we're broken. And yet, how freeing it is to say that. Knowing that you are a God that pours out grace beyond grace. The Father, arms out, excited to see the returning prodigal son. That's our story. Oh God, I pray that in all of this it would just bring the reality, the tenderness of the reality of who we are before an awesome, mighty, loving, grace-giving, poured-out God who came, who lived on this earth, who knows what it means to be rejected by broken people, to be spit on, to be murdered, and still to come. You are so gracious. And we can be so stingy. God, I'm just going to say it again before you. We can be amazing jerks. Would you help us? Help us this week to watch ourselves and to learn and to be most tender about where we're at. Thank you, Lord, for these people. Thank you, Lord, for this place allowing us to talk about such a hard, sensitive subject like this. I pray it would be received well. For your glory in Christ's name, amen.